today uh, i'm thrilled to have dr smitha radha krishnan a prominent scholar and an author join us dr radha krishnan's in-depth analysis of the dynamics of india's microfinance sector challenged popular perceptions of women's empowerment and financial inclusion she illuminates gender roles and the little known features of microfinance organizations in her book making women pay dr radha krishnan how are you doing today I'm well, Raya. Thank you so much for your careful research and for inviting me here today. Okay, so my first question for you is, what was the journey behind your chosen areas of interest in gender economics and microfinance? Um, sure. Well, this is a kind of a long question because I think I've been interested in uh, gender inequality from the very beginning, you know, observing dynamics within my family, within other families, um, I didn't really, it upset me at a very fundamental level, you know, with the little knowledge that children have, you know, children are still great observers. And I think it upset me from a very young age that it seemed that the women that I knew were economically dependent on a, a male breadwinner. Um, and so I think that that sort of fundamental unease about that, um, as well as certain cultural questions uh, growing up in the U.S. led me to be interested in questions of gender and development more broadly. But it actually took me a long time to end up studying microfinance in particular. Um, I My first book was about uh, gender and IT. So when I started, when I got uh, entered into the PhD program and started thinking about uh, what kind of dissertation project I did, you know, it was the early 2000s and this was when tech was really booming in India. And the women tech workers had kind of become a figure, right, in the new in India as of you know the whole country's upward mobility and transformation and so forth. So I ended up doing writing my dissertation, my first book, really looking at gender and culture in IT. Um, but my my roots, you know, kind of the reason I got into academia in the first place was really about gender and livelihoods, you know, for folks that we might call today at the bottom of the pyramid, but really I would call the global majority. Um, and so it was only after this IT book, which was really about kind of an elite, a more elite middle class in the Indian context, um, that I came circled back to questions of microfinance. And this also was because of events in India. So it, during, you know, the kind of late 2000s, 2010, uh, you know, that was when microfinance was becoming widespread in India, was becoming commercialized. And uh, there were not many critical writings about it. And there were not many qualitative studies about it. And the quantitative studies, to me, uh, despite the fact they seem to be about women, did not really talk about the dynamics of gender inequality um, as related to, you know, caste and class and, you know, other important factors that we think about. Uh, as scholars who are interested in gender inequality. So that's kind of how I ended up focusing on microfinance. I started um, out with an interest really on training programs, which I know we're going to talk about a little later, uh, but very soon it became clear that I couldn't just restrict my focus to training programs and that I needed to understand the industry more broadly. And so the the project kind of grew from there or sort of metastasized like it's I was like oh I'm just going to do a small study on training and I'm just gonna you know look at this one little space but it ended up becoming a huge project that I spent about a decade of my career on that sounds great and the second question I had was through your research what were the variations in the effectiveness of microfinance programs in urban areas versus rural areas that you saw across the nation 
Okay, so I really, uh, my study is really focused on urban microfinance because there's a lot less that's been written about it, a lot less that's known about it. I went into the study with a few assumptions uh, based mm -hmm. on the existing literature when I started the study. One, that, uh, you know, rural microfinance was a very different beast than urban microfinance in the sense that rural areas had had self-help groups for uh, decades, really since the 80s. Um, and, you know, and that that rural microfinance was oriented towards enterprise development, uh, you know, and was really about building livelihoods, but that urban microfinance may be kind of a different beast, right? And I also had an assumption that nonprofit microfinance um, was really different from for-profit or commercial microfinance. And through the course of my study, both of those assumptions were upended. Uh, this is why empirical research you know, you do empirical research and you're like, huh, okay, well, the reality is not, is more complicated than what uh, what I thought going into it. Um, and so what I came to find out is that there are actually a lot of similarities between rural and urban microfinance. The majority of commercial microfinance firms in India that are currently in operation are not oriented towards enterprise development, although some of their websites still say that. They are mainly oriented towards giving women um, and I'll talk about that it's not really women, uh, but giving women borrowers, I should say, access to uh, finance at slightly lower rates of interest than the most exploitative forms of, uh, of finance that are available in their neighborhoods and in their villages. Um, so it's an effort to kind of allow them some access. And it's often framed as helping them. But the idea is to allow them some kind of access to funding streams at lower interest rates. And they're actually not so concerned about what people use it for. And it's, in fact, very difficult to use them for the purpose of enterprises because the amounts are quite small. Just You can only start up a very small business with uh, the amounts that are given uh, in, in context of microfinance loans. There's very high interest rates and there's very strict terms of repayment. Um, which if you're starting a new business, you can't uh, pay, start paying it back the very next month if you've made a big investment in capital, right? Um, so the, the fundamental setup of microfinance kind of undermines its the, the aims that it purports to, you know, that it publicizes. Uh, the actual, you know, the, the, the details of how it actually works are quite different. So, you know, to circle back to the question, you know, there's actually, I'm not saying there's no differences between urban and rural microfinance. There are important differences, um, but they are a lot more similar than you might think. Um, many, the urban model has really been based on the rural model. They are all based on the group, uh, the joint lending uh, group model that comes from uh, Grameen Bank in Bangladesh. But the idea is that you take a group uh, loan that's shared liability, it's joint liability group loan. So you have um, anywhere from five, five is the pure Grameen model, but it can go all the way up to 20 borrowers who come together and share liability for a loan. But the loan is taken in their individual names. It's just that the other members collateralize that loan and ensure that take a, take a, a, a vow actually when they take the loans that if another group member doesn't pay, that they will pay from themselves on the on behalf of the other member. So it really is collateralizing the loans, uh, the connections between women and um, asking them to kind of, uh, you know, it, it sounds like a good thing, like, okay, I'm going to stick up for my friend over there. 
But it also mm -hmm. means like, let's say you're taking a loan with a bunch of your neighbors, right? Or in whether it's in the village or uh, in an urban area. And one of them, you know, the child has a sick child, right? And that medical emergency, maybe it carries on for a few months. And mm. that friend is unable to come up with her uh, repayment uh, installment, right, on time. And so maybe the first time, the other, you're able to help her and you pay back. And maybe the second time, you barely come up with the money. But after the third or fourth time, if her child is still ill, and she's still paying exorbitant hospital fees and doesn't have the money, right? Not only are you going, you're going to become upset because you don't actually have the money either. And you probably yeah. won't take a loan with her again. So the social connection between you has also been destroyed as a result of the loan, right? So women are really collateralizing their relationships with one another when they take out these kinds of loans. And that's the same, whether it's in urban areas or in rural areas, it's really um, quite similar. So that's why I say they're they're much more similar than different. Actually, one of the most interesting things about what you said was probably the reason that people take out loans are really not looked at as much as they look at the loan that's taken out. So I think in a lot of these right. microfinance companies that you're talking about, they give out the loans in terms of getting money back at a certain high interest rate. But that's right. They really don't look at how they're going to repay it and what can be that process in terms of what they're taking the loan out for. And I think that's overlooked often. And I think that's a great point that you brought out. Absolutely. Um, and and that's another, you can only look at that when you get into the actual processes of microfinance institutions. And the commercial entities are essentially financial companies. They are regulated as such. They fall under RBI, Reserve Bank of India, um, purview, and they are they are for-profit financial entities. Their um, you know, mission as an organization is to ensure that investors maximize their profit. Uh, and so as such, you know, although they are, yes, serving a group of a segment of uh, the Indian population that has not been adequately served by the conventional banking system uh, since independence. And I can tell you a little bit about that history if you're interested. I think it's a little outside the scope of this conversation. However, uh, you know, although they are providing that service and nowhere in my writings do I deny that that service is being provided, it's being provided with the prioritization of those who are doing the lending, right? So the, the who is benefiting, right? It's not really the attention is not being paid to uh, whether those who are taking the loan are really reaping the maximum benefit that they could be re reaping. That's that's not the focus of the loan. Definitely. So um, transitioning to my third question, uh, the question is, will the advent of digital literacy make users more conscious about the financial options they have and their access to them? Okay, so this is an interesting question. I think many of us who come from, you know, middle or upper class backgrounds are like, you know, if folks just uh, those, you know, if those folks just become a little bit more financially literate, if they have more digital literacy, you know, they'll be able to manage this new world, right, very effectively. And, you know, I think that that is a comforting thought, but I think the reality is actually quite different. So, and there's a number, first of all, there's a gender um, dimension to it. Uh, yeah. There is a lot of new research that has come through really from uh, think tanks within India. It has not hit the scholarly literature as well, but there have been pretty extensive research-based reports um, that have shown that, you know, increasingly smartphones have become um, an arena of gendered contestation 
where some women, when they get married, often will have their smartphones taken away from them or have the smartphone be under control of their husband or their son or another uh, dominant man in their household. Um, therefore, they don't necessarily um, have the, the freedom or the control over their money through the digital sphere. So, you know, whatever you can say was negative about, you know, there's a lot of downsides to cash in terms of its vulnerability, but, you know, women developed ways of saving cash that were outside male control, right? Uh, that may not have been perfect, but, you know, women would have places where they would save it and try to, you know, and then when, when the medical emergency hit, they would pull out a wad of cash, right? Um, when all of your cash is on a digital platform, that a man in your home controls, you don't really have those kinds of options, right? Um, so yeah. there's a big push to centralize and digitize, make everything um, on the smartphone, but that that presumes that those who are using it have total control of those digital devices, right? Which are very expensive, the services data is expensive, right? There's, it, it's a lot, that's a lot to assume. Right, it's a it's a very middle class assumption. Um, secondly, the, the rise of fintech in India, in particular, has made it so that the digital products that are available can be even more exploitative than the microfinance and other loans that are out there. And in fact, they are constantly pushing um, more loan products at ever higher and higher rates. So even if you pay back successfully the likelihood that you're gonna be offered a bigger loan that's even more expensive is actually quite high. And that's something which even better off folks um, are getting entangled in you know, various forms of digital debt. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure that that's gonna address the issue of uh, you know, gendered marginalization within labor markets and within financial markets that supposedly this entire space is trying to address. Definitely. I think what I found most interesting about what you've said and what I've experienced also is that, you know, the smartphone that people talk about, a lot of women who live in slightly um, impoverished areas, that smartphone is usually always in the hands of the male of the family. And Correct. It, and they never usually get access to that. And right. their majority of their saving they do, as you mentioned, is in cash. And yeah. they... they pay because even a lot of the men in the family don't allow their children to be educated so they save save up money through cash in those forms so they can educate their children they can pay for things that are related to the house and I feel like these family dynamics usually overpower this kind of digital literacy that can help so I think there's a lot of change that has to come socially before it does before any digital literacy ties and makes any difference. So I think yeah, absolutely. And the, but the problem is we are not thinking so that this is why, you know, going back to something I said earlier, um, you know, if we are if we're just interested in women as some kind of a unified category without mm. looking at the dynamics within households, within communities, right? Mm. Questions of power, right? Uh, what what is the kind of work that women are undertaking? to care for the family? What are the kind of constraints that they are facing? Um, and where are they encountering those constraints, which are yes, in their home, but also in the labor market, also in access to you know, fair work. 
lots of women will spend all their money educating their children and find that their daughters, even if they have a qualification, can't get well-paid work because of some other social barrier, right? Um, yeah. Where maybe that that type, I mean, most, a very recent study came out that said that even in areas with very low areas of India with very low levels of, you know, patriarchal structure and cultural taboos against working, uh, women still weren't able to get employment that was equivalent to their to their qualifications because of the sex segregation of the labor market. So, you know, the best jobs are reserved for men. You know, if there's a lim tight employment, those really good jobs are not given to women. Right. So so if you're not dealing with questions of gender and power, making a new app that women like is really not going to address some of these deeper issues. Um, and so you need that lens of thinking about power marginalization, uh, opening up that black box of the household and looking within it, um, which I think a lot of these uh, inclusion, digital inclusion, financial inclusion type of solutions, you know, really leave intact. Uh, they don't really uh, look into that in any way. And, you know, even the microfinance loan, it's supposed to be for women, but when women go and submit the paperwork for the loan, the man has to actually, first of all, it's almost never given to single women. And their husband have to submit their Aadhaar card and proof of employment in order for her to get the loan. So it's supposed yeah. to be a group loan that all women take together, but it's actually their whole household and they are the ones who are responsible for paying back. So these are dynamics that have been well documented in the literature but don't really seem to change the public perception that microfinance is this wonderful intervention that's helping women, right? And maybe that's because there are just like no other good options, like, and maybe this is the only one they do a good job of, you know, making uh, their public image very shiny. But uh, yeah. these are facts on the ground and uh, I, it's hard to dispute them. Definitely. Um, and the fourth question I had, was have women-centric microfinance institutions allowed for them to explore more entrepreneurial ventures? And do you see that bringing in social equality within their communities in the future? Um, so entrepreneurship is, you know, a very much a, a buzzword within in the context of global development, right? So everyone <laughs> wants women to be entrepreneurs. Um, I think that we need to think bigger than, I'm not saying that entrepreneurship and entrepreneurialism, you know, never brings about positive change for women. I think that there is an important role and in context of, you know, sex stratified labor markets, uh, you know, women taking up entrepreneurial ventures can be a path forward. I'm not going to deny that. At the same time, I think it uh, focusing entirely on that also sort of misses the point, right? Because the often when we think about entrepreneurial ventures for women, what we're thinking about are small, home-based, non-scalable activities that bring in a small income that do not challenge the entire setup of how society is structured, right? It's like ensuring that women can continue to do their domestic duties full-time and bring in a small income with a small entrepreneurial venture or a small cooperative venture within their neighborhoods, not one that allows them to you know, be mobile, uh, work. And most of the women that I've interviewed in the context of my research, they would much prefer to have a job that you know, very often I would come and they would maybe not be sure whether I'm associated with the MFI or not. 
And then they would say, no, but you know what I would really like to do is work for the MFI. Like I can also talk to these women, you know, I'll get a nice salary, I'll get insurance. You know, that's preferable to them, uh, certainly in the urban context, uh, than starting up a business where they must take on all of the risk themselves, right? Uh, starting up an entrepreneurial business is pretty risky. You know, uh, how many uh, middle-class or upper-class women would want to start a business from scratch? You know, we still see women extremely underrepresented and, you know, facing a lot of barriers when we talk about tech entrepreneurship or financial entrepreneurship. Um, and somehow we think that poor women or oppressed caste women um, are going to be, you know, the saviors and they're going to, you know, take up these entrepreneurial ventures and uplift their whole communities. But I think it's a lot more um, complicated than that. So this question of social equality that you talked mm -hmm. about in the latter half of your question, I think that's something that all of us have, a, have to have a hand in bringing about. We have to have a real commitment to it. And we have to ask questions that think about, well, what would social equality look like? You know, um, what would need to change to actually bring about social equality? And those are deep, uncomfortable questions uh, yeah. that don't allow for the sustenance of the easy assumptions that we have about those poor women over there and our enlightened society over here. Uh, these are forms of gender inequality that exist in all classes and castes and communities um, you know, in India and in the U.S. and in other places. It's not just something that's restricted, right? And so we need to look at the institutions and structures that uphold them if we're really interested in social equality. You know, giving women entrepreneurship grants without addressing the structures that uphold social inequality, uh, including caste, class, uh, and gender together, we're not going to really get there. Yeah, actually, one of the things that I absolutely loved about what you said was that when women in poor or impoverished areas try to take on these entrepreneurial roles, they're usually restricted to smaller roles. Like when I had gone to interview some women um, yeah. from this microfinance company that I worked with, mm -hmm. I saw a majority of the women that worked did roles like oh, they tailored some people's clothes outside yes. of their work. And then they like opened up a shop for selling snacks outside of their homework. Like all yes. of the jobs they did were outside the purview of their housework. And they did yes. that additionally to just gain additional income because either maybe the man of the family wasn't making enough income. So I, yeah. I feel like definitely the entrepreneurial roles are so restrictive that they be again become like just a smaller side role. It's not like they're really doing a job and really um, working equally as much as the man is like allowed to work. So right. I think that that's one of the most interesting aspects. And that comes down to, you know, we still in Indian policymaking, and it's true in the U.S. too. Um, it's true in many countries. We still have the presumption of male breadwinner, female dependent, yeah. right? Yeah. And we have not, and that actually influences policy. And in my book, I talk about, you know, interviews with policymakers that say, look, we are a livelihoods organization. We are not a feminist organization. Ultimately, the man and the woman have to come down and you know, figure out a way to live together, to eat together. So we are not interested in changing any of those roles, which essentially means that you are these companies and the, the entire industry is interested in protecting the understanding of the male breadwinner when we have seen the opportunities for men also to, especially in, um, 
you know, coming from more impoverished backgrounds, their livelihoods have also been are also very highly restricted, right? And they face a lot of social barriers too. So it's not like the men have like, you know, great opportunities uh, to make money, right? In fact, women may have opportunities that men lack, right? Yeah. So, but we, so we, but we don't have, you know, a changed or an altered sensibility, you know, that men can also share the domestic roles and women can also share the, the breadwinning. And in fact, the whole project of running a household needs necessarily needs to be shared by men and women. And there needs to be more fairness, both in the labor market and in the home. Right. And now we are talking about issues of social equality. Right. Because when you move away, get, get to those core issues, then it's not about right. Um, digital literacy or financial literacy. Those are helpful skills. But if these core issues are not addressed, then it's pretty hard to get there. Definitely. And talking about policy making, do you feel there are any kind of changes to policies in microfinance institutions to help any of these women clients financial needs? Do you hope to see in the future through any of the research that you have done? And in your Absolutely. Book? So the conclusion of my book, I, I lay out several actionable kinds of steps. Um, one is simply to be responsive to uh, folks who are from the backgrounds that the microfinance clients are actually coming from. So although there is some effort to, you know, and there is some window dressing around this, I found that men and women who come from households that have taken microfinance loans or who are from those same communities, they seldom rise into strategic roles within the firm. Um, mm. the, micro, as microfinance has become commercialized, what you see is actually a lot of barriers to women rising up in the hierarchy. When they do, they are siloed into HR roles or into uh, social impact kinds of roles. They are not involved, people with any kind of marginal identity are not involved with decision-making, uh, strategic decision-making within companies, which is basically the, per the sole purview of caste privileged men. Uh, yeah. Those men are are deified and are seen as, oh, they're doing this amazing thing for their community, uh, but they ru are run like normal for-profit uh, financial, I shouldn't say normal, dominant uh, financial institutions. So I, I really think that who you have at the table really matters. Uh, yeah. I think having uh, people at, uh, who are boards of directors and who are at that strategic, you know, CFO, CTO kind of level who actually um, have lived experience in these communities and with these kinds of roles would go a long way in ensuring that the policies and the functioning of MFIs uh, actually, uh, you know, are a little bit more beneficial. Um, I think that there there are some fo some companies that work with municipalities um, on the ground, but I think it would be great to see that expanded. Uh, MFIs have gotten involved with you know food provision, childcare various kinds of things under their social impact mission. It would be great to see a lot more integration between that and the loan products that are offered. So I do think there are very specific, I, you know, I think my study, you could come out of it and say, oh, well, microfinance should just be abolished. You know, I think you could come out of it and make that argument. But I feel that it's very important to recognize that microfinance has made inroads um, with connecting its developed relationships of trust within uh, segments of, uh, you know, the the larger community in India that have been long been marginalized from, from uh, formal banking. 
So, you know, what we need to do is really uh, rethink and, you know, um, reorganize the industry in a way that it is more accountable to those that it serves. Definitely. And I think these solutions that you've mentioned would help any company. I don't think it's only Absolutely. in my I, I think it's across the board. Any company with a person who actually understands the people who they're helping would just really help make a and, huge difference yeah and we yeah. don't we really don't see that and i provide examples of my in my book about you know the way that some of the social movements of the 90s that gave birth to uh microfinance organizations as ngos that leadership eventually has been pushed out folks who are focused on education uh women's issues uh you know social change those folks as the as the industry has commercialized those folks though that that um those personnel have been pushed out and replaced by, you know, men with financial industry background who come from dominant caste backgrounds. And I think that that is a pretty significant, right, change that shows you what their priorities are now. Definitely. And the last question I had, actually, I asked everyone in the podcast this question. And if it was, if you could collaborate with any global leader or institution on any kind of project, who would it be and what kind of a project would it would you envision yeah that's a really interesting project or a really interesting question and i don't know that i have um a ready answer for it um but i do think that um yeah that like i'm not sure like one outstanding one doesn't come to mind um well to take a, a very different take on the whole question um, yeah. Apart from being a uh, researcher, uh, I'm also a dancer, and I've been a dancer my whole life. I've probably spent more time on dance than on sociology. And I think that the arts are actually a very potent um, arena of social change. I think the body is a very pot potent uh, site of social change. And so I am interested in materiality, not only within households, but also within bodies. So although I can't name a particular, uh, you know, person at offhand, I think I would be interested in working with an organization or a person who uh, cares about not only the economic, materiality, not only in terms of economic well-being of not just women, but all uh, folks who suffer from gender oppression, including LGBTQI folks, uh, the trans communities all over India, um, and thinking about doing work to reclaim uh, bodies and livelihoods. You know, that's really where my passion lies. And that could include um, not only, you know, ways to make a fairer livelihood free of exploitation, but also ways to reclaim the body so that we uh, become more in touch with our bodies and more in touch with our emotions. And I, I think that's a very radical political and economic act. And I would be um, excited to work on with someone or with an organization that looks at the intersection of both of those things. That sounds great. And I think it really brings out a different aspect of you in the podcast. So I think that sounds great. And thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I mean, it was a really interesting conversation for me. I hope so. Thank you, Raya. I enjoyed your questions as well. And I hope it's illuminating for your listeners as well. Definitely. Thank you. All right. Have a great day, Raya. Thank you. Take care.